0: Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcasts, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. My name is Mira, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jonathan.
1: Um, Hi, guys. Today, uh, we're joined by Dr. Laura Parker, um, a professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy here at Mac. After completing her postdoctoral fellowship at the European Southern Observatory, um, she established her lab at McMaster in the year 2007, focusing on how the environment influences galaxy evolution. Darker Parker identifies observable properties of galaxies and correlates them with properties of their environments, such as the mass of the dark matter halo in which they reside, their position within this halo, and the properties of the gases that surround these galaxies. The overall goal of the Parker Lab is to understand the mechanisms by which galaxies in the universe are transformed. So, hi, Dr. Parker, Uh, we're so happy you were able to find the time to talk to us today. And we want to start things off by uh, getting to know you a little bit better. Um, So would you be able to share a little bit about your journey, like, toward a career in research and what your specific interests are and how you ended up as a PI here at McMaster? Sure, I'd
2: be happy to. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So I've been at McMaster now I was just calculating it's been 13 and a half or 14 years so I've been here a while now but my my academic trajectory started as so actually way back in high school I was super super lucky to get an opportunity to go to an international school I'm from the east coast from the Maritimes from New Brunswick and I got a scholarship to go to a school in British Columbia where the student body, it was only 200 students, but people were from 80 different countries, which coming from a small town in Eastern Canada was just an incredible experience. And at that school, we did the IB program. So I know some students will be familiar with the International Baccalaureate, it's offered at Ontario high schools too. So we did the IB and with the IB program you choose higher level courses that you, you choose to specialize in and I did higher level physics and chemistry and I loved both of them and I really didn't know what I wanted to do for university uh, and then I went off back to the east coast for my bachelor's degree at a small liberal arts university called Mount Allison which is a great university but the reason I chose it was actually just because they gave me a scholarship and nobody else did and my financial situation was such that that was important there was one astronomer there and that astronomer was a fantastic teacher. So he's actually won national awards for university teaching in Canada. And I got the opportunity to work with him on research projects as an undergraduate. And that really encouraged me to go on in astronomy. And my research with him was actually in solar system astronomy. And you just did the introduction. You said, what I study is galaxies and dark matter. Those are things on really, really big scales. But my research started studying asteroids and comets and things in our own solar system. So I've sort of moved from local scales out to big scales. So I went from that as an undergrad and then I decided I really wanted to go to grad school and I applied to different places and I ended up going to the University of Waterloo for my PhD and the main deciding factor. And if there's some one piece of advice I can give to students interested in grad school is that your supervisor really matters. And so you wanna find a PI who's doing research you find exciting And also, really importantly, speak to the other grad students in the group and see, are they happy? Are they getting good opportunities? And so I went to Waterloo to work with a PI that was doing stuff that I thought was cool. So I was there for four years did my PhD and then moved to Germany for a couple of years to do research and then was super, super fortunate to get hired back in Canada at McMaster after I did one uh, postdoctoral fellowship in Germany.
1: Um. See. That, yeah. That's an amazing story, and it, especially because you started so early on in 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 your career, it seems like a great opportunity. Uh, to be able to be in such a diverse environment at UBC that you talked about. Um. What. What. Like. What was the motivating factor that, if if any, that that made you say, "Oh, I want to study physics," and um, I'm interested in in space and and asteroids and solar systems and galaxies.
2: I think it started like as a kid science was an obvious choice for me science or engineering because just of my natural inclinations and interests but i was always really strong at math as a kid that was my favorite subject i loved math and so i naturally uh, went towards sciences that use a lot of math that's really what i liked Um, and i think honestly if i had had a professor in undergrad who did something other than astronomy they got me really excited i could be doing something totally different and i think that's also a fun thing about science. You get excited by a project or working with someone and you go in that direction, but we're all capable of doing working in different fields. Like if I were starting today, there's a very good chance I'd be in a totally different field. Like maybe I'd be doing neuroscience, which also can use a lot of math to apply to interesting science problems. Like there's lots of science that's really exciting. And I had an awesome prof. I got to do research. I got excited about astronomy, but I think that spark could have been in a different direction if the circumstances had been different.
0: Yeah, um, it's really good to hear. I think um, a lot of the times, like people really get set into place of like, um, oh, like they have to know exactly what they want to do. But science is such like an interdisciplinary field, and you, you can really end up anywhere, no matter what you study. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the work in your PhD. So um, you mentioned that it was a little bit different than kind of the stuff that you do now. So could you talk about your experiences in your PhD and? Um, what you studied during your PhD? Yeah, so in in astronomy, we have kind of different scales. You can
2: think about locally. I, I said I started in solar systems, so that would be very local, but you can study planets, stars, galaxies, or if you study the universe overall, we call that field cosmology. And like many people in physics, as an undergraduate, the questions in cosmology got me really excited. Like questions like, how did the universe begin? How is the universe going to evolve? How is it going to end? So these big questions on the origin and the evolution of the universe, that's what I wanted to do my PhD in. And at the time in the early 2000s, one of the really big questions we were trying to answer is, how is stuff, matter in the universe distributed? And in particular, this one kind of stuff called dark matter. So dark matter is matter that has mass and has gravity, but does not give off light, does not absorb light, does not reflect light, which makes it impossible to see directly with our telescopes, but we can detect it indirectly on how it affects the stuff around it. And I found that problem just so fascinating that I wanted to work on that. So as a PhD student, my research was all focused on trying to understand how dark matter is distributed in the universe. How much is there and where is it? But in order to do that, you need to have some observables that you can see that help you trace out the dark matter. And the observables in the universe are galaxies. So galaxies are these huge collections of gas and stars and dust. We live in one called the Milky Way, has about a hundred billion stars in it just for scale. And every galaxy out there has about a hundred billion stars or so. And I got so excited on the, about the problems of, of galaxies themselves. Why do they look the way they do? How, what are the physical processes that change them over time that kind of naturally, as I left my PhD and started my own independent research career, I transitioned from studying the dark matter as my primary thing to the galaxies, which I just got really excited about because they're such interesting, complex objects.
1: So um, before we get to talking a little bit more about galaxies and, and like, like why they're so cool, um, do you think, so as as a biologist and outside like, the field of physics, like, I guess my, my question for you is, do you think like since since the time of your PhD, we've come any close, any closer to like answering those questions about dark matter or?
2: Yeah, so I mean, it remains one of the big questions of physics. So astronomers since, really convincingly since the 1970s have shown that there's extra mass in the universe that we can't see. And so we call that dark matter. And over time, our measurements have gotten better and better at determining how much there is and how it's distributed. I think we've learned a lot. But because we can't directly see it with our telescopes, it remains slightly unsatisfying. And so the I think the big effort going forward is actually not in astronomy, it's in another field of physics called particle physics. Because the one theory for what dark matter is that seems to fit all of our observations is it's some new kind of particle. So you've all heard of neutrons and protons and electrons. What if there's another particle that is massive enough to describe the dark matter? So if there's enough of them, but doesn't interact with light. And that might sound like a crazy idea, but we have another particle kind of like that called a neutrino, which some of you might've heard of before, super lightweight particles. We know they exist. They don't interact with light. There's not enough of them to describe the dark matter. So neutrinos are not dark matter, but maybe there's another particle out there like neutrinos. And that today is in particle physics laboratories, either in colliders, like at the LHC Collider in Switzerland, or in in particle detector experiments like here in Canada in Sudbury people are trying to detect look for these new particles and whoever finds them it's going to be revolutionary uh, and if we don't find them then we start to get into this uncomfortable are we right about dark matter or is it something else is it not particles is it is there something else that describes the dark matter that that astronomers are observing
1: um thank you for that thank you for educating us about that that exceptionally cool. To transition uh, after that, uh, what was your experience with your PhD like? And uh, what what's like what one thing that you'd advise like students who are interested in, in astronomy and astrophysics like to do when thinking about PhD, uh, doing PhDs and, and graduate studies in, in that area?
2: Yeah, so my most, the most important bit of advice I can give I already gave, which is to to really focus on the the supervisor and the research group and making sure it's a place where you think you'd be welcomed, where you'd be supportive, where you could do your best work. And so if, for example, that you hear about somebody doing incredibly cool research, but they haven't graduated a single PhD student in the last 10 years, or students have started in that group and not finished, those are enormous red flags that that you want to pay attention to. So I think that the supervisor matters the most, much more than the prestige of the school. So a lot of people apply based on this is a famous school, this is a famous institute, and you know that can, be, that can matter somewhat on your CV, but actually being in a, in a supportive group where you can be productive, have a good research experience, publish papers with collaborators you like to work with, That's way more important. So that's my top bit of advice. The other thing is, in pre-COVID times, in our field, it was really usual when you applied to universities, if if they were seriously considering considering your application, they would invite you to come visit. So if you get the opportunity to visit a, a place that you're applying to grad school, so if it's not at McMaster, you're applying to other labs in other places, and you get the opportunity to visit, I highly encourage you to do that you really get a feel for a place and whether you can see yourself there if you get a chance to visit and that can be more challenging now. But for students who may be applying to graduate school right now and there's an opportunity to maybe do some virtual visits that's, of course, not the same as being in person, but it's the next best thing and it's maybe what we can handle right now. So take advantage of those opportunities.
0: That's really good advice. Thank you for sharing that. I think it applies to a lot of people, no matter kind of what um, discipline they go into for their PhDs to always make sure that their PI is like a right fit for them and to kind of explore the lab um, before they kind of dedicate to that. Um, Moving along a little bit more in your career path, uh, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your experience at the ESO and what kind of work you did there and just how, um, how your experience was. Sure. So the where I did my postdoc was a place called the
2: European Southern Observatory, which is sort of a funny name. But the the way that astronomy research, observational astronomy research, is done in Europe. So I'm distinguishing between observational and theoretical work because in astronomy there's kind of two two ways you can address questions with theory, and often that's simulations or with observations from telescopes that's very different than in other fields of science where you have experiment and theory we don't have experiments because we have one universe and i can't go i can't go hit a star with a stick and see how it responds i can't do that but i can observe so we use observatories to study the universe And in Europe, a number of years ago, all the different countries in Western Europe doing astronomy research joined together to make one big organization, so they could pool their resources and build bigger telescopes. And so the European Southern Observatory, its headquarters is just outside of Munich, Germany, and that's where I lived, but the telescopes are actually in Chile. So they run these large telescopes and the largest one at the moment is called the Very Large Telescope, not the most original name, but it's actually four individual telescopes, each one of which is eight meters across. And every one of those telescopes is enormous and has a, a suite of different instruments that can do different things. So those, some of those instruments take pretty pictures and they can take pictures at visible wavelengths like our eyes see or also in the near infrared and also some of the instruments are not just taking pictures, they're doing something called spectroscopy, where you spread the light out and you actually study in detail the, the properties of objects you're interested in, things like what's the chemistry. So do you see emission lines coming from oxygen or hydrogen, or what are the components you're looking at? And you can also use spectroscopy to measure motions. Are things moving towards you or away from you and how fast are they moving? So we've got a suite of instruments. So that, the European Southern Observatory in Germany, it's a lot of the scientists are there, but the observations are being done in South America, in Chile. And this is a huge organization with hundreds of astronomers on one campus. And on, actually on the same campus, there are multiple Max Planck Institutes, which people may have heard of. Every discipline in, in science and in other fields, there are Max Planck Institutes in Germany and they're spread out throughout the country. They focus on different areas. Some of the astrophysics ones are based in Munich. So on the same campus, we had two max Plancks in astronomy. There was a university and there was ESO. It was an incredibly rich place to do a postdoctoral fellowship. And really that's why I think my research transitioned from dark matter to more studies of galaxies is because I had all these great people to talk to about galaxies and, and get excited. And so there were lots of collaborators naturally around to talk to, talk to about science. So as you transition to being more of an independent researcher, having lots of people to talk to and to bounce ideas off of uh, is a great environment to be in. So I was super fortunate to have that experience.
1: Um, you spoke a little bit about like the different like experimental versus theoretical data that you can uh, or more like observational versus theoretical when it comes to astronomy. Is there a difference in how like um, results from either type of uh, analyses are looked at? like? Um, uh, is observational data like limited and uh, in, in, in some ways and sort of like theoretical simulations are used in place of what observational data can't achieve?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the two areas are very complementary. And I don't even like saying these days that you're one or the other because a lot of us work at the boundary between the two. And so I actually collaborate really closely with uh, a simulator and we co-supervise graduate students together who work at the boundary. But you're absolutely right so limitations exist for observations there's only I, I don't have infinite time on the telescope to get all the photons of light i might want so how can i do the best science possible with one obs- one hour of observation or one night of observation on an object so you're limited by always limited by signal to noise how much light you get and we're studying incredibly faint incredibly distant objects and so we're limited by how much light we get from them and also things like the spatial resolution. So you know when you have a digital camera, which is what we use in astronomy as well, you've got pixels. Those pixels have a certain size. And if you're studying super small, super faint, far away objects, you're getting noisy measurements. So you're not getting perfect data. So one thing you can do in a simulation is is overcome some of those effects. However, a simulation of let's say a galaxy is only as good as the physics you put in to simulating the galaxy. So if we don't have a complete understanding of galaxies, which spoiler alert, we don't, that's why we're still doing research in the field. It means that your simulations compared to observations are a great tool for finding where there's gaps in either. So it can tell you, I need better observations to constrain this theory, or it can say, oh, my theory must be missing some fundamental physics because it doesn't match these observations. Because in some sense, Even if the observations are noisy, they are the truth, because we're really taking pictures of the universe so a simulation has to match the observations.
0: Yeah, It's really interesting to see kind of how the two levels of analyses kind of intersect and you can work together with them. Um, I was wondering a little bit about these like simulations that uh, you guys run so is that something that you develop like within your lab, or is it um, something that you collaborate with other labs to form? Um, Yeah, could you talk a little bit about just like the simulations and how they're formed?
2: Yeah, so these days the state of the art simulations are enormous code packages that take many years to develop and a given simulation, if it's gonna be interesting, give you something that's new and novel, it's going to run for months and months and months on Canada's most powerful supercomputers. So the the kind of research that we do using simulations is really computationally expensive. So it's not something you run on your laptop overnight. It's something that runs on supercomputers. And that also means the code is, is big and complicated. And so if you're a graduate student, for example, working in simulations, you're probably adding one small component. Like let's say, these simulations have been run and it has all this physics, but we have a new model for how black holes work. And somebody has to take that new model and put it into the big simulation. So that's what a a kind of a project someone might do is implement one new piece of physics in a much, much bigger code. And I myself don't, don't do that sort of work, but I do supervise students who either run these big codes or analyze the output. So one of the wonderful, amazing things about astronomy, maybe my favorite thing about astronomy, is that we are incredibly in favor of open data and open science. So all of the big simulations in their first paper to talk about the results, they publish all of the data, usually in a database that's online. So you, as a regular old astronomer, not part of that collaboration, can go to their database and extract objects of interest and study them. And similarly observationally our telescopes, the data becomes public from all the telescopes so in other fields of science, if you're doing research in your lab you've got some nice measurements on a system it's for your group. All of that data doesn't necessarily get published somewhere, whereas we have big archives of all of the data from the major world observatories all becomes available, so my graduate students, we can write our own proposals to get data at telescopes, but often we don't have to, because we can use archival data that already exists to answer the questions we're interested in. So that's I, I think that's a wonderful thing about astronomy. We do these big surveys with many interla- international collaborators. And then at the end of the day, all of the data is available to the entire world, because you might have taken some data to answer one question, but that same data set can be used to answer many other questions. And if you make it available, then you just get more science out of out of the data.
1: Yeah, I guess that's that's so interesting because I feel like like you mean, like with fields like this where there's like so much of information, you can't get that far without that collaboration and can, without like making that information available, right? Because like not everyone can like. What's the point? And the collaboration helps, um, like like advance fields like that. So I, I find that I find that so cool, too. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree.
2: Yeah. And also just as a specific example on that, everyone's heard of the Hubble Space Telescope before. Yeah. So Hubble takes, you know, the most amazing pictures of objects and we all are in awe of them. There's time on the Hubble Space Telescope. The way it works in astronomy is you write a proposal. Panel of experts who decides whether your proposal is successful or not. For every 10 amazing ideas you have, maybe one of them will be accepted and you'll get time on Hubble. So, if we didn't have all of the data be really limited, like to only 10% of your ideas ever getting the data, instead, I bet that for the 90% of other ideas, there's probably some public archival data that you can use to at least partially address your questions of interest. So, having all of the data available for everybody all over the world means you don't have to constantly be writing proposals, you can be using the data that already exists. And I find it's a way to be creative too. So how can I, this data was taken for one purpose, how can I think of a new question to ask of that same data set? I think you have to be pretty creative and that's a fun, I think a fun way of doing astronomy
0: research. kind of regroup and focus a little bit more on your current research now, Um, we were wondering if you could go over what galaxy evolution is and what characterizes this phenomenon, um, just for people who may be not so familiar with the topic.
2: Yeah, so galaxies are these beautiful big objects that we see with telescopes filled with, on average, about 100 billion stars. And in between the stars, there's gas and dust. And on top of that, most of the mass is dark matter that we don't see. So they're pretty complicated objects, although compared to biology, they're ridiculously simple because it's only a few components. So we have these, each galaxy is like that. And then there are billions of galaxies in the universe. And galaxy evolution is all about trying to understand how things change in time. So when we say evolution, that's all we mean, is how do they change in time? And what's cool about, what's amazing about observational astronomy is that a telescope is really kind of like a time machine because it takes time for light to travel. So light does not travel instantaneously. That means I can study galaxies like the Milky Way and our nearby neighbors, and I'm kind of studying the universe today. What does it look like today? And then I can go out with a telescope and study further away galaxies. And I'm looking back in time to when the universe was younger because it's taken time for the light to reach me. So in, this, in the units we use, I would say, okay, that's a galaxy that's a billion light years away, where light year is a unit of distance. So you can convert it to meters if you want to. So I look at a galaxy a billion light years away, I'm looking back in time a billion years to when the universe was a billion years younger than it is today. And then with telescopes like the Hubble Space Telescope, I can see out billions of years. And so I can look back to galaxies when the universe was much younger. And so by doing that, I can see what did galaxies look like 5 billion years ago, 10 billion years ago, and they looked different. So in the past, galaxies were much more active than they are today. And what I mean by that is they were forming way more stars. So the Milky Way, this huge object of a hundred billion stars makes about one new star a year. So for an object that big, it only generates about one new star a year. And if I look out to very, very far away galaxies, they're making stars at like a rate of a 1,000 stars a year, way, way, way faster. And I can see that. The other thing that's really cool about galaxies is that every one of them has a giant black hole in the center. And as we look out into the more distant universe by using our telescopes as time machines, we can see that in the past, the black holes were growing really quickly. We can see stuff falling into the black hole, being heated up, being super energetic. and that is a time that the, just the universe was more active. And so it's fun to, to study what's going on in the past and how does that transition over time until today. So the particular things I'm interested in is how does the star formation rate of a galaxy change over time, how does its size, how does its shape, how, do it, how does its color, all the things I can see with telescopes, I want to understand how do those change over time. And then the big question is why? And so that's where the physics comes in and you ask what physical processes are making these galaxies change and that's what all of the students in my research group. are trying to answer so each person has a different project, maybe one person studying star formation one person studying color or something. But they're all trying to understand what physical processes make galaxies change over time
1: um so uh, actually what just what the question that came to mind so you, you talk about um like star formation rate and uh, like these other physical properties or the other ob- observable properties like 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 you said so so what for example would star formation rate like what does does what in particular can that tell you like about uh, a galaxy and like like or or what is happening physically that that makes them differ
2: so the Star formation rate depends on, so the rate at which you're making stars, stars form from cold gas, it turns out. So we understand the physics of that pretty well. And so by studying the star formation rate, I can understand how much gas a galaxy has, and I can understand how quickly it's using that up. And if you're interested in why galaxies look the way they do today, you have to understand those things in the past and how they evolved. So it's it's really, this is fundamental research that doesn't have a lot to do with everyday life per se it's really like trying to understand the universe around us we live in this thing called the milky way why does it look the way it does it does because in the past we merged with other galaxies we had periods where we formed tons of stars we had periods when our black hole was really active and then periods when it was not so active all of that understanding all of those pieces helps us understand the galaxy that we live in and Also, the physics is interesting. And so that's another fundamental motivation is some of the physics of the earlier universe doesn't exist today. And so the only way we can study it is by looking at distant objects. So the processes were different in the past. And so it's just uh, fun and interesting is the fundamental reason why we do it.
0: Yeah, no, that's super cool. I think it's like a very unique area of research that's just like Really, really interesting, because it just helps you understand the world around you and why things are the way they are. Um, in terms of you know studying these nearby galaxies, could you elaborate a little bit on what properties of the galaxies that you investigate to understand this relationship between their environment and how they're constantly changing? Sure. And I just actually wanted to go back
2: to one thing on my last answer. Okay. so the the reason we do it is because we're interested. and mm-hmm. so people who are in other areas of science they might say why spend money on doing something that is not you know doesn't affect human health doesn't affect uh necessarily climate change those sorts of things so understanding our universe i think is fundamentally an important thing to do but the other more practical side of what we do is we're studying the faintest furthest away things in the universe and if you want to do that you need amazing cutting-edge technology and so, a side effect of doing observational astronomy like we do in my group is that you're always working with state of the art instrumentation. And so, the fact that you all right now have digital cameras in your pocket, in your cell phone, a lot of that development was first for astronomy. Like, we needed sensitive detectors so that we could take pictures of really faint, faraway galaxies. And there's a whole bunch of other examples throughout the history of observational astronomy from coding and from from programming and coding all the way through to direct instrumentation that at the end of the day ends up as a consumer product 10 or 20 years later it's not why we do it i mean it's not why i we build instruments to study the universe but it turns out those instruments can be useful for everyday life as well so that was sort of a tangent to justify my existence beyond just wanting to yeah. understand the universe but going back to your question so the The thing that my group really specializes in is not just galaxy evolution overall, but how does galaxy evolution depend specifically on the environment in which galaxies live? And by that, I mean, are they in a very high density environment with tons of neighbors, or do they live in relative isolation? And what we've learned over the last 10 to 20 years is that the evolution depends strongly on things internal to the galaxy, so what's going on inside the galaxy, and their greater environment, the stuff around them. And so my research group really focuses on that. And specifically right now, we're doing a lot of studies on how does galaxy evolution depend on um, where you live in something called a galaxy cluster. So galaxy clusters are collections of up to about a thousand galaxies that are all gravitationally bound to each other and orbiting around. And so they can be really big, a thousand galaxies, and you can go down and scale from that all the way down to small groups of just a few galaxies. And there's unique things that only happen in these high density environments. You can have flybys, nearby, near um, gravitational encounters of nearby neighbors that can make, they can strip material out of galaxies. You can also have in galaxy clusters, it turns out when you've got like a thousand galaxies all together, these are the biggest objects in the universe. So there's nothing. The universe is bigger than that. There's nothing gravitationally bound where stuff is, is really connected together bigger than a galaxy cluster. And so within these galaxy clusters, a thousand galaxies interacting, tons of dark matter, and tons of hot gas. So it turns out that galaxy clusters are filled with gas that we can observe with X-ray telescopes, which is something we do in my research group too. We use X-ray telescopes from space. And the one of the I'll just give one highlight of one of the things we're interested in right now is as a galaxy, like the Milky Way, it's got stars and gas and dark matter, what happens to an object like the Milky Way when it falls into one of these enormous galaxy clusters? Because it turns out that's happening all the time in the universe. A big object like a galaxy cluster has a lot of gravity, it attracts things around it. And so galaxies will fall into a galaxy cluster, and it's it can be pretty dramatic what happens. So as a galaxy plows through a galaxy cluster, it can have its dark matter stripped out. It can have its gas stripped out. It can be, it can be left, basically it can be shredded into nothingness or it can be left with a little nugget at the end and, and not have much left at all of the galaxy. And that depends on its orbit. It depends on how massive it is. It depends on how fast it's moving through the galaxy cluster. So we are directly using a multi-wavelength approach by seeing the gas in galaxies, which we observe with radio telescopes, the stars in galaxies, which we observe with visible telescopes like Hubble and X-ray telescopes to see the really hot gas. We're combining that all together to figure out what happens to galaxies when they fall into galaxy clusters. And these galaxies, when they get shredded, make really beautiful images. So students really like to work on these projects. You get to stare at gorgeous images. The most dramatic examples of these are something we call jellyfish galaxies, where the gas gets stripped out behind and you can see it in observations. So I encourage your listeners to do a Google image search on jellyfish galaxies, they're beautiful. And this is a really fun problem to study observationally and to tackle through simulations. And so I also have a graduate student co-supervised with one of my colleagues who's studying these jellyfish galaxies from a simulation perspective. So what happens to galaxies as they fall into galaxy clusters.
1: No, that's, I definitely Googled that while you were talking about it. It does look cool. Um, <laughs> um, a little, because you touched on this a little bit. So could, could you give a brief uh, just like overview of like some of the projects that you're currently focusing on in your lab and, and, and that your graduate students are working on?
2: Yeah, so everyone works under this umbrella of galaxy evolution in different environments, but everyone has a slightly different Um, individual project. So one example is the one I just mentioned of a grad student who is specifically doing simulations of galaxies falling into a galaxy cluster, studying the properties of those galaxies, how they change over time. And the wonderful thing about simulations is you kind of know everything like you know where every particle is in space and in velocity. They know more information than we can get from observations so it can be helpful as a comparison sample so that's that's one example. Um, I have students who are working as part of a large survey of one nearby galaxy cluster called the Virgo Galaxy Cluster. Turns out it's the nearest big cluster to us, and we're part of a a program from a telescope called ALMA. ALMA, A-L-M-A, is the largest radio telescope in the world, and it's in Chile. And it's not one telescope, it's actually called an array, so it's made up of many telescopes that all work together. And the advantage of having telescopes spread out is it turns out you can get much higher spatial resolution. So let's imagine you, the, how well you can resolve a small object depends on how big your telescope is. So that's why we like to build bigger and bigger telescopes. But you reach a certain point where you can't build a bigger telescope, but you can fake one by spreading out two individual telescopes far apart. They can make a, an image that the resolution is related to how far apart they are. And so there's this array of telescopes in Chile that lets us get super high resolution uh, radio images of galaxies. And so for the first time, we're going to have 50 galaxies with really detailed measurements of their gas and their stars and everything all in one galaxy cluster. And why that's so exciting is up until recently, we didn't have high resolution images of gas, so I see a distant galaxy, I could say that galaxy has a certain total amount of mass in gas, that's all I could say, I'd get one measurement per galaxy. Now I can, with these high resolution images, I can find out exactly how much gas the galaxy has in every pixel at very high resolution. So now we can start to not just study global properties of galaxies, but resolve what we call resolve properties within the galaxy. So how does star formation and color and gas and all that stuff depend on where you are within a galaxy? And with this sample, also within a galaxy cluster, the bigger environment. So it's an unprecedentedly detailed study um, where we get such high resolution stuff. So I've got a student, one student, and I might have a second student working on on that project. Um, and then I have two brand new master students and we're trying things out so we're not 100% sure the direction where, where the, these things are going to go but one student is looking at uh, this, the observational side of what happens when a galaxy falls into a cluster. There was a paper last year that had a night, an interesting result of when a galaxy falls in its shape changes before its star formation rate but I, it was a really fun paper but I'm not sure I agreed with how they did their measurements. So it's a it's a master's project to see if we do the measurements in a different way, do we find a consistent result or something that doesn't agree? So that's sort of a fun project. Yeah, so a variety of things, but we're interested in particular these days in these questions of how, how do galaxy properties depend on their environment, and in particular, where they live in a galaxy cluster.
1: No, that's an- I, sorry, I, uh, sorry, sorry, Mary, but I kind of have like a small, small question. Um, is So all that, that increased resolution that you're able to get and like find out like, oh, like per pixel, for example, like intricate details, is that all made possible by ALMA and like the, the multiple telescopes?
2: Yeah, so for the, uh, for gas measurements, it's all due to ALMA. And then at other wavelengths, so the other nice thing is we can do multi-wavelength studies. There's other telescopes that have also similar resolution. So ALMA... So important physics concept, the the ability to resolve small scales depends on two things, the size of your telescope, which I mentioned, and the wavelength of the light you're studying. So the longer the wavelength of the light is, the bigger the telescope you need. So for radio emission, which is what we see with ALMA, that's very long wavelength light, which means we need really big telescopes or multiple telescopes spread out. And that resolution can match some of the things we can do now with optical and infrared telescope with the biggest single telescopes in the world. So it's they're really well matched. So the, the way to study galaxies these days is, has really evolved into a multi-wavelength um, way of doing things. So historically, if you were an optical astronomer, you used optical telescopes. If you were an infrared astronomer, you used infrared telescopes. And you become a real expert in that field. These days, our students are using every observatory they can get their hands on, and they're really trying to understand objects from the entire electromagnetic spectrum of light, all the way from gamma rays and X-rays. For those of you who remember your electromagnetic spectrum, everything from the highest energy X-rays through to radio, which is very low energy, very long wavelength light.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's super cool. The, like, I guess, just like the technological advancements that have happened, that allows you to study, like, all those different cool things that you mentioned. Um, super exciting stuff. Um, I guess going off of hearing about your um, grad student projects and those kind of bigger projects going on in your lab, um, we wanted to ask about what the typical role of undergrads in your lab is and what kind of project would an undergrad take on in your lab?
2: Yeah, so I have um, every year, like everybody, there's some undergraduates who are working in my group and depends, the projects will depend a little bit on the students' background and also what they're interested in. So most of the students who work with me are from physics and astronomy, so they're doing honors physics or astrophysics or biophysics, something within our department, but I also supervise students from arts and science and ISI, um, students who have some physics background but, but not as much, and I every year I have a long list of exciting projects that are again under this umbrella of galaxy evolution in different environments, the difference for an undergrad project is. I usually give you a data set that's ready to do some analysis on so most of the research in my group is not analyzing raw images from a telescope but i'd be giving you like big tables of numbers, where I might have you know, 100,000 galaxies and for each one I've measured their mass and their color and their star formation rate, a bunch of properties. And then you'd be asking questions of that data set related to your research problem. So do galaxies, spiral galaxies lose this some fraction of their gas when they fall into a cluster or something? And so you'd have a research question, you'd have big data tables and you'd start making plots and you'd start selecting data in different ways and doing data analysis it involves typically lots of plots and and some statistics as well and for students who are really interested in the stats side of things then we can we can have problems that are more on the stats side of doing data analysis and for students who really really want to not do stats and want to do maybe they really like doing plotting and images and and synthetic images from simulations or something we can do that kind of work as well so I try to tune the projects a little bit to what students are interested in. So students who come into my group, I give you in the first week a list of some possible projects and tell you to go away and think about them and read a little bit. Each one will have a bit of reading. And then I meet with students a week or two later to narrow down the specific project. I really like for students to have some ownership over what they're working on. And I find students are more motivated and more excited if they help to choose their project. Like if you're stepping into a new group you don't, you can't come up with a project from scratch that would be unrealistic but you can choose from a list of things that sound interesting. So that's the way that we we do things in my group. And in terms of what students do afterwards, certainly some go to grad school and keep doing astronomy, but many don't and the skill set from doing data analysis plotting lots of Python. Those things are very transferable. So there's a lot of students who come through physics and astronomy research who end up doing data science and data analytics and that sort of thing.
1: So building a little bit on the thread that you mentioned, like maybe what do you look for um, like in in an applicant to your lab, like either for as an undergrad or or as an undergrad applying to grad school to work with you? Like, Like what do you look for in someone applying to your lab?
2: Yeah, good question. There's no magic formula, but number one is enthusiasm. <laughs> so I, hopefully I have conveyed that I'm excited about the work that we do. And it like, it's nice to be in an environment where everyone's excited about the science and the research that we're doing. So enthusiasm is really important. Obviously you have to have a strong academic record, Um, In particular, if you're applying to graduate school, we have a slate of required graduate courses in our program, and so we don't want to take on students who wouldn't be able to be successful in that so there's kind of a bar that you have to be above to be to be able to be successful in the graduate courses, but beyond that I don't care about someone with a you know, 12 11.2 10.7 they're all kind of the same in my mind, it means you're a good student it's all fine. So enthusiasm, number one, and because of the kind of work that we do, having not being intimidated by doing analysis on a computer, broadly defined. So you don't need to have taken five courses in Python, but you need to not be afraid to try things. And so there are, I find with computing, there's kind of a initial hump you have to get over where you think there's no way I can ever do this. I've never coded. This is so hard and impossible and then once you've solved one problem you realize oh every other problem I ever solve is some permutation of that like I can I, I did it before I can do it again and so as long as students are over that initial hump in in computation like they've done something then that's that's the other thing I look for so if you're a McMaster student then we have a second year scientific computing course called physics 2g03 which anyone can take in the faculty of science That something like that, or there's a first year Python course in the Department of Math and Stats, something that shows me you've got a little bit of of computing experience. We're not doing sophisticated, uh, really complicated computing, but you need to be confident enough to open a file, read in a couple columns, plot one thing against another thing. And that, so that's that's kind of a, a requirement to work in my group as well.
1: No, thank you. That, that was really comprehensive, and and like you said, passion and enthusiasm is what makes a good a good researcher for sure, and it's what makes the environment fun. Um, so I guess to all our listeners, uh, if you have the background, I encourage you guys to apply. Um, but other than that, uh, uh, we wanted to wrap up uh, like today's talk. So thank you, thank, thank you for coming out and being featured, and giving us like a little bit of a crash course in. Uh, in galaxies, galaxy clusters, and I'm definitely going to do some more reading on them.
0: Thanks for having me. It was really fun.